Hello, and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Camuso-Miller. I'm a public affairs professional in Washington, D.C., and I interview members of the media about their background, about how they got into journalism, and lots of other topics. The Friday Reporter is a PR Daily podcast. Check out PR Daily for ideas, inspiration, and trends on all things public affairs and to find the Friday Reporter podcast. Hello, and thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. Today's episode, I'm joined by Christine Delamore from National Geographic, uh, and I cannot wait to get into this conversation and learn more about this great publication that she works for and the kind of work uh, that they do. Christine, thanks for being with me. I'm happy to. Christine, tell me a little, because so many of us are familiar with National Geographic, uh, Will you start, will you help me get a sense of, um, of the way the work is done there? I know we've talked a little bit about the fact that there are a couple of different silos in, uh, in the organization. Share with me a little bit about how that looks. Right. So we have two departments, or I guess you could say organizations, within National Geographic umbrella. We have the National Geographic Society, which is the nonprofit and which funds research all around the globe. And then we have National Geographic Partners, which is the profit arm. Mm -hmm. And that focuses on books, digital journalism, the magazine, social media, that kind of thing. And then within National Geographic Partners, in our department, we have five desks. So we have science, environment, animals, culture, and travel. Wow, that's so... That's so neat. And it's so cool to know that you're really sort of really dialed in and really familiar with, with those particular um, areas. But tell me a little bit, how is it, how did you get your start in journalism? How did you get to be at National Geographic and doing the work that you do today? Sure. I started out uh, studying environmental science because I've always been passionate about learning about the world around me and how nature works and wildlife in particular. So after I got my undergraduate, I wanted to find a way to meld my interest in science with uh, a passion for writing that I've had since I was a child. So I went to a journalism program, a grad school program out in uh, Colorado that was focused on environmental journalism specifically. So I got a really solid foundation in how to tell stories about uh, wildlife, nature, science, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So with that foundation, I turned my focus back east looking for a job uh, that would give me an ability to use those skills. And I got an amazing fellowship at Smithsonian Magazine that, uh, you know, got me more into the public sphere and, uh, you know, more well known as a, a writer in that topic. And then I just so happened to apply for an opening for a general uh, news editor for National Geographic's website 15 years ago. Oh, this wow. is my 15th year anniversary. Congratulations. Coming up in May. Thank you. And I've been there ever since. That's great. You know, the thing that strikes me so much about um, the work that's done especially I've, I've gone back and sort of taken a look at the the pieces that you've written. I mean, wow, there's so much, much research and there's so much time that goes into the work that you do. Uh, and it always, 
the one thing I reflected on as I was reading that is how are there are there dozens of people? Is it just you? What does it look like? Uh, that kind of research must have you must have a team that you work with to make sure that um, all of what you put together in these great pieces is 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 done in the right way. Yeah, it depends a lot on the type of story. So I write everything from or edit also everything from a story that takes two days to a story that might take five years. So it depends what kind of story it is. Sure. The stories that are longer term, um, for example, I'm working on one about urban wildlife right now. That is, you know, a process of reading books and research papers and doing interviews uh, for a long period of time to mm-hmm. develop an expertise in that area. Right. But if I'm writing a story about a new species of snake that just was discovered, I mm-hmm. might call a scientist and talk to them for, you know, a half an hour and read the research paper. Right. And I'm an expert in, you know, two hours. Mm-hmm. No question. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and certainly really have- I was going to say you probably you have to have a real depth for um, for n- not only being able to, to take in all of that information, but also know the right questions to ask in order to make sure that the um, the research is adequately um, reflected because, you know, scientists my perspective would be that they spend so much time and so much of their career really focused in on these specific areas that I have to believe that you as the the journalist who is writing about the work that they've done, you want to make sure that you get it right. Yes, that is extremely important. And, you know, I'm always a stickler when I interview scientists in particular, I make sure I understand their experiment and what they did in the study. Mm -hmm. Because I, th- I think it's a very important public service, um, you know, in building trust with the public that you communicate the science accurately and you don't cut corners in understanding, you know, what the scientists actually did in, in the research. Sure. And on the so. flip side, you want to make sure that the, because they have spent, for many of them, spent their life's work uh, doing this uh, kind of research, you want to make sure that it is um reported in a way that uh, that that they can be proud of too, right? That it's um, adequately highlighting and, and putting forth the, the findings that they've pulled together. Yes. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. No question about it. Um, do you do a lot of travel for this kind of, for this kind of work? I would imagine that you spend a little bit of time getting out and seeing uh, what it is yeah. you're writing about. I do. Uh, not so much in the last few years, yeah. but, uh, over the course of my career at Nat Geo, I have reported from all the continents, which wow. is really amazing. Yeah. And I feel very fortunate to have had the experience to go to Antarctica and report on climate change, uh, to go to um, Spain and report on um, endangered wild species. I've mm-hmm. had extremely um, uh, amazing experiences uh, around the world. Um, for Nat Geo. And for that, I'm very grateful. And it's been, you know, a huge uh, perk to the job as well, you know, getting to explore. And as a curious science journalist, you know, it's also personally very enriching to get the opportunity to see all these new places. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I wonder too, uh, because in many other news outlets, many other publications, um, Budgets and opportunities long before even the pandemic, um, 
budgets for travel were pulled back because that was something that wasn't as much of a priority. It, it, it strikes me that that could not possibly be the case for uh, for National Geographic because so much of what you all do is report about lots of issues all across the globe. Um, but how has that, how has the pandemic yeah. changed some of the work that, that you and your colleagues are doing? Well, for the first year, uh, we, you know, generally either did our phone interviews on or did our interviews on the phone or we would lean more on freelancers in a particular place. Ah, okay. Um, so say, you know, you're working on a story in Kenya, you might use a freelance writer who lives in Kenya mm-hmm. to do some reporting on your behalf. Interesting. So that's, that's been a good, uh, uh, fix. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think it's actually helped us realize that we can do a lot more as many people realize on zoom than you might think. Right. <laughs> but, in terms of reporting. Yeah. Well, but also <laughs> too, to be, to be able, yeah. And to be able to know that you have that great network of, of freelancers and other folks that you can connect with that can yes. help in that process. Yes. That is not some, that's oh, for sure. Photographer, because that's something also that, um, not only the the written journalism, but also the photojournalism that you all produce every every all year long, every year, uh, for as long as I can remember, has just it just is so um, just so great and so illustrative, and has to continue because it's the brand that you are. Um, is there a story? Is there um, is there a project? Is there something that when you think back over the course of the last 15 years that you've been there, is there something that stands out to you as something that you're particularly proud of or that really sort of marked your, aha, I'm really, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm, I'm proud to be doing this kind of work moment? Yes. And I uh, referenced it uh, just a few minutes ago, which is the fellowship that I received to go to Antarctica mm-hmm. to uh, report on uh, science that's being conducted at McBurdo Research Station, which is the largest research station on the continent. I was uh, one of three journalists um, selected to go, and wow. I flew to New Zealand and then took a military plane to this research base and spent about a week embedded with scientists learning about penguins and uh you know, neutrinos and all kinds of science across the board. This Mm -hmm. was before I was focused squarely on animals and wildlife. So it was just wonderful experience to immerse yourself in this world that very few people will ever get to see. I mean, most Antarctic tourists, they go through South America and they see the peninsula, but this was hardcore Antarctic science in a research base with the scientists. And I created a blog at the time when blogs were more fashionable mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, reported every day using dial-up internet, which was interesting challenge. Uh, but that actually led to my first book um, called South Pole, um, which is about an Antarctic uh, expedition in the early 1900s. So that's an example of how um, an opportunity led to another opportunity um, and really enriched my career. Well, that's 
Well, that's amazing. And I, I, I didn't know about the book. So now I put it on my list because a new, <laughs> a new entry in the, in the Friday Reporter uh, project is that I'm starting a list of books, uh, not just books that are authored by our guests, but also, also books that people have recommended over the course of time that uh, are worth reading and, and um, checking out. I have to ask because I just spent a little bit of time in New England where the temperatures had reached um, a pretty... I mean, it was zero, but the real feel was somewhere in the in the negative. Um, what was what was it like to be in Antarctica? I mean, was it had to have been? Well, you must have had to have specific gear and other things that you had to uh, prepare yes. for in advance. Yes, actually, you're legally required to have this this bag of uh, gear in case something were to happen and you were stranded. Mm-hmm. So you have to wear these. Uh, really intense boots and um, government issued jackets and hats and baklavas and all this kind of stuff. I bet. And one of the highlights of that fellowship was we got to go to the South Pole for just like two hours. Uh-huh. We flew in a, in a giant plane wow. from the research base. We landed, we got out and it was the most, you know, remote and barren place I've ever seen. There's not a single shred of life there, not even um, you know, a worm or anything. It's oh, just a nothing. vast polar desert. And the one thing I remember when I stepped down is not only being out of breath because it's so dry and so cold is that my teeth hurt because it was so cold. No kidding. <laughs> when I smiled, my teeth were frozen. Wow. Oh my Definitely goodness. the coldest I've ever been. Yeah. And that wasn't even the coldest time of year because it was during their summertime. So no kidding. Yeah, Antarctic researchers are pretty hardy human beings. Well, yeah, it also it seems to me like it um it might also feel like you're on another planet because it just is it so did. remote and so different from anything that you would have ever covered yes. otherwise. Exactly. And I'm probably one of very few people that will ever go to the southernmost point on the planet. So yeah. That's why it was such a special well, experience. Yeah, what a great honor for you and certainly a testament to the work that you've done there at National Geographic. Tell me a little bit about um, about what you're covering now. You mentioned before that you have a specific area. What is it that that now, as you're um, entering in your 15th year, what are you covering specifically for National Geographic? Well, my job is primarily covering uh, wildlife uh, conservation, wildlife news. Uh, so, for example, like I mentioned, if there's a new species that is reported or, you know, a new report that says that a certain, like say gorillas are green in the wild. Most of my job is really just being on top of that news and editing or writing stories on it. Mm -hmm. And then the other half is uh, working on the print side of the magazine. So um, for example, I have um, a long time feature in the works on how urban wildlife, so animals like coyotes and raccoons, are evol- perhaps evolving or changing their behavior to live uh, alongside humans mm. and how that might uh, impact um, how we live with nature as urbanization increases. Mm-hmm. So that's been a long time focus for me. And that article will be published in October in the magazine, which I'm very excited about. Um, and one of my themes over the years, and this is an essay I wrote about uh, in last year's, I believe it was the May issue, May 2021, is underappreciated species. So a big focus of what I do is shedding light on some of the animals that you might not know about. So going beyond the tigers and beyond the lions to those creatures that tend to be ignored a lot. And 
um, my essay from last year explores why it's important to focus on them and how important they are to the ecosystem. That's so interesting you mentioned because um, magazine magazine writing and magazine publishing is such a long tail uh, because a lot of times the work that you produce isn't even available until long after. So you mentioned um, your uh, story about urban wildlife and how it won't be available until October. How does that, um, what does that timing look like? How many months out are you preparing a magazine before it hits the newsstands? It really depends on the story, but it can be, it literally can be years mm. for the magazine. So some of the reporting that you do um, could be several years old. So that can be a challenge because you have to make sure the information is still accurate. I see. And that's part of the reason why the magazine has really um, great fact checkers that will make sure every every fact in your draft is absolutely up to date and correct because mm -hmm. it's going to be in print and you can't change it like you can on the website. Sure, so, sure, sure. Um, yeah, it's often a multi-year, very intense process. Whereas the digital side is, you know, much more quick and um, rapid and, you know, if you make a mistake, you can easily adjust correction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you also you also mentioned before we got on uh, to to record and to have this conversation um, that you have an Instagram and that you have TikTok. Even did you say is that that is you guys are doing social media in that way? Even yes, yeah. Our uh, social media accounts are extremely popular. I bet um, our in our Instagram, our TikTok, and our Facebook. Um, very, very popular ways of us, for us to interact and hear from our audience. And really, it really helps inform our story decisions as well, because we want to know what people are interested in mm -hmm. from us and what they're not. And that, you know, general themes will emerge. For example, people are very interested in marine creatures. So whales, sharks, deep sea creatures, uh, maybe it's because they're so alien to us or, you know, just we're so disconnected from them sure. that people are just fascinated with um, the oceans. Right. So those kind of themes are really useful for us to hear from via, you know, social media and things like that. Well, just like anything else, I mean, especially, and especially because your, um, the publication itself has been um, around for as many years as it has. You also have to meet people where they're digesting information too. I'm sure you have loyal subscribers. I know you do, uh, but there, but you also have to meet a new generation and meet people in places where they are consuming information and how smart of you guys to be in that space um, and attracting a, a newer and younger perhaps uh, audience. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's very important. And as you mentioned earlier, you have a lot of, uh, Nat Geo's in your childhood home, and a lot of people do. But the key is how do you capture this new generation, and what kind of stories are they looking, you know, are they looking for from us now? I mean, and that's that's, we, that's a difficult. We thing. had a subscription as kids, and now I'm a product of the um, '70s and '80s and early nineties. Uh, so I really was uh, using that as a resource, right? As almost, you know, we had the encyclopedia, we'd go to the library, we'd use the card catalog. Now I'm really dating myself, but, uh, but having that national geographic was a resource in a way that we as kids um, really got a lot of information. I mean, we did research projects based on the uh, materials that we found there. And, and now my kids, everything they do is online. Nothing is in the library. I mean, card catalog is like, what are you even talking about? Um, so all of those resources has 
just changed so dramatically. I mean, just this past week, they said the SAT will now be uh, conducted almost entirely, will be conducted online as of 2024, uh, which is a total change. So I think it's really great and and just um, wonderful to hear that you'll continue to find ways to meet your audiences and, and get that information out to folks as they consume it, because that means that we'll continue to be able to enjoy this great content. Tell me this, Christine, how many do you ballpark really doesn't have to be specific. Just curious, like how many people work at National Geographic? So that's tough because we have international editions around the world. So we Uh, have uh, people working um, in magazines around the world. But for the U.S. operation, I would estimate probably 1,500 in that ballpark. Okay. Yeah. And well, the society has fewer. Um, the nonprofit has fewer right. employees. I'm not actually sure what they are, but right. that would be my my estimate. And uh, a few years ago, we were purchased by Disney, so um, you know we've also been going through a lot of change. I didn't realize that internally. I bet mm-hmm. you have. Yeah, we're we're Disney employees now. Oh. Interesting. Well, that definitely explains why I've seen a lot more of uh, what looks to be like National Geographic content coming from the Disney brand that I had not I did not realize that. But that's interesting. How has that? um, Well, that's cool. I mean, that's another way that you're reaching people with, you know, reaching audiences that maybe you might not have had access to uh, previously also. Absolutely. Yes. Well, that's cool. So, Christine, uh, tell me a little bit about... um, so you're here, you're in the Washington, D.C. area, you're living during through the pandemic, you're uh, experiencing all these uh, cool things and doing a lot of research. What are you, uh, do you have any new projects that are on the way, books that are in the works or uh, essays that you're excited to report on? I know you mentioned the urban wildlife, anything else that's on the back burner and that you're working on? Yeah, I'm uh, hoping to do a um a series on endangered species and I'm still kind of thinking about what that will look like but the anniversary of the Endangered Species Act is coming up uh, next year so we're brainstorming ways that we can find uh, you know um, interesting stories about that and how that how the endangered species issue has changed over the years and um, you know what kind of species are we ignoring? Which kind mm-hmm. need more attention? Mm-hmm. Um, what kinds do you have in your backyard that you might not even realize uh, that you have in your own backyard? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm leading into that, um, you know, looking more at rare, uh, underappreciated animals for the anniversary next year. Well, that's neat. It always seems to be the kind of uh, news, too, that really does sort of cross over a lot of lines because it does definitely bring in the the climate discussion. It brings in, um, you know, just about a lot of different audiences and, and is certainly going to be um, especially interesting to read. So we'll uh, stay tuned for that. Christine, as we and uh, to get excuse me, as we get to the end of our conversation today, I'm curious: is there someone that you work with in the journalism space, or someone you think that might be a good recommendation for a future episode? Yeah, actually, I think that Rachel Lallensack, who is an editor for Science and Innovation at Smithsonian Magazine, which is where I used to work, would be a great person to have on. Uh, she is very engaged in the science journalism world and uh you know we're we've worked together over the years in various projects and i think that uh she would be a great addition to your 
your program. Awesome. Well, good. Well, I will, uh, I will tell Rachel that you uh, nominated her for a future episode and I will okay. look forward to, to uh, the October magazine and all the other great online digital content that you're cranking out every day. And I'm so grateful for your time today. Thanks so much, Christine, for being with me. Absolutely. It was uh, really enjoyable. And thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity. And that's today's Friday Reporter podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.